0: You're listening to Artistic Finance, show 132. Today's show is the second part of our interview with Broadway costume designer Greg Barnes. If you want a summary of what we're going to talk about, jump back two episodes to part one of this interview. And now, without further ado, let's get to the show.
1: You're listening to Artistic Finance Podcast, where your host, Ethan Steimel, interviews successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire artists to grow their wealth.
0: And actually, you hit on something there that, like, a lot of times people say, you know, as a designer, cetera, blah, 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 you don't make enough money to be putting your own money into a show et cetera, like that. And you said something about spending your own money to make the project go. Explain that a little bit. You're not the only one. And I I shouldn't say this. I'll probably cut this out because it's not for me to say. But I know John Lee Beatty has made several comments about, oh, yeah, I put money into this. And even though I knew the show wasn't going to do well or whatever, but it was just easier, better, better for the design to just buy the couch and donate it.
1: You know, a lot, this is a very hot button issue with designers. I think you should leave it in. And I think I stand on the, probably on the wrong side of this conversation, but I stand on the side of it that makes me comfortable. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, After Aladdin, when we were working on Aladdin, it was about a four and a half year process. And I counted, I turned down 23 jobs to do Aladdin because I did not want to be overcommitted. If Disney needed me somewhere, I wanted to be there. And I wanted to, you know, just I just knew it was it was the kind of thing that could, A, the project took that much focus, but also I didn't want to be anywhere else, you know. But on opening night, uh, right around the time it opened, Casey said, oh, we're going to do most happy fella at Encores and you're going to do it with me. You know, you're going to lose money doing that because it's you do it for the relationship and because they're great. And then right after that, I got a call to do June Moon at the Williamstown Theater Festival. And I had never worked at, well, A, we talked about this earlier, nobody asked me to do plays. I've never worked at the June Opera Festival, and everyone that I admire has done it. At the end of that job, but, you know, Summerstock, the show only runs two weekends. Uh, You know, fabulous company, Uh, Jessica Stone, who I absolutely adore. Who directed Kimberly Akimbo directed it, but I ended up spending twelve thousand dollars of my own money, and the fee was twelve, you know, twelve. I don't know what it was, but it was a very small fee. But I sat myself down, like I did when I had the crossroads of do I become a union sketch artist or do I take this job at NYU? And I said, I have spent four and a half years in a land of spectacular a fable, a fairy tale, and somebody is asking me to do this job. I don't want to do any job that I don't feel like looks other people can, you know, say what they want to say about my work, but I know that I have a standard that I'm not going to why do it? It doesn't make sense to me. I because I don't do it for the money. I do it because I feel this connection. So at the end of it, now I've never been asked back to the Williamstown Theater Festival. The show was I I thought it was a great production, but it wasn't greeted with, you know, flowers on the street. But I left it feeling so satisfied. It was an it was sort of essential at that time in my life for my own, whatever that is, my own heart to do something that was different that was you know that i meant something that i don't get asked to do so you have to you know depending on who and other people are like that is insane that was more than the budget for the show but i didn't care Uh, and i could afford it you know i'd done kinky boots and i was benefiting financially from that and you have to follow your heart you can't just make every decision i mean i say that you uh, until you're in a secure place, of course, you have to make wise decisions. Sometimes I think it's a uh, penny wise pound foolish to make every decision about, you know, if you can pay your rent, it's like you have to decide for yourself what you need.
0: Well, and I also think at any given point in your life and career, you making that decision after Aladdin is different than you making it before Aladdin or in, in 1981, you know, when you're paying more for rent than you're making in money.
1: and But even then, even when it was a church basement, if I could, and I knew that by this $50, this, this gift of $50 will make this thing look better than somebody could have done it with the same limitations and the same passion and the same talent and the same, mine will look $50 better. I would spend the 50 bucks because I don't care about clothes and trips. I don't have a partner. I don't have a cat. You know what I mean? I don't have, I don't have, I've kept my life very monastic in a way.
0: And I think another reason why it's a hot button issue, sometimes it comes across as the haves versus the have nots. And that's what you're saying about you have to be in a financial secure footing in order to make a choice like that. You know, somebody else wouldn't, wouldn't have the option to make that choice. This is why it's so hot button. It's like you're hitting on bigger societal issues, bigger financial issues that in entertainment, we don't talk about the money. We don't talk about that. So then it's like this growing resentment that happens. We all care about the show and we all want the show to look good and we want ourselves to look good. So that's the natural position.
1: And I do understand that. But I also have to say, I moved here in 1980 with nothing. My parents gave me $2,500. That was their sole investment in me. I made my way. And the way I did it, I didn't come out of poverty, but I came out of a middle-class home. Pretty middle-class, I'd say. My dad was an elementary school principal, and my my mother was a stay-at-home mom. But it was a point of pride to not go to the well. There wasn't anything to get there anyway, I think the conversation is absolutely, I'm totally on board with everything that you just said. But also I have to pat myself on the back a little bit to say that I didn't go out and drink. I didn't smoke. I didn't do things that chip away at whatever your financial reality is. I I I lived very, uh, I'm patting myself on the back and then I'm not patting myself on the back because I know that people have, much, much more difficult paths. But I also can't just completely say that I didn't create my own destiny.
0: Well, and and we've talked about on the show a lot where it's like, almost everybody on this show started at zero. But starting at zero is way better than starting at negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned it earlier on in the show. It's like, you have to be healthy in the right place. There's so many factors. And I think that's also why it's complicated in theater. Theater is a hard business, no matter if you're on the producing end, no matter if you're established, like it, it doesn't matter. Because like you mentioned, Natasha Katz at the top of her game, very successful, but was on some like at hot, leaving at midnight, showing up at 8am, leaving at midnight, showing up at uh, So, as successful as perhaps privileged, I'm not saying Natasha Katz is privileged, but as privileged as people who can afford these options are, they're still putting in a lot of time. That's why it's complicated here. Everybody in theater is making sacrifices, even if you do come from a trust fund.
1: Absolutely, which is a great thing about your podcast. But you know, when you are tra- you travel in a lane, I don't talk to other designers about their workday, their income. I just know my experience. And because of how the conversations have broadened and amazingly, I mean, it's such an incredible learning. I'm good friends with Paul Taswell. And we had a conversation, um, oh, it's been a while ago now, but it was at the end of the George Floyd, in that end of COVID, in that time. And I learned more from Paul, who I've known since he was you know, he was my grad assistant at NYU. I learned more in that three-hour chinwag about life, racial inequity, financial inequity, and, you know, his experience. And But we don't talk about it because usually you're too busy, and it always seems a little bit awkward. I don't know. Maybe we should share information more readily, but it's not sort of ever been the you know it's impolite or to talk certainly money
0: oh man you're telling me (laughs) because get you know getting people to come on and and this is why i thought you and nathan were joking when nathan said oh greg will talk about money you know blah 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 you know i thought he's joking because it's so hard sometimes for me to find people that that are willing to discuss it speaking of paul taswell i'm trying to get him on the show and so maybe you can also introduce me there
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, Paul is uh from the time I met him, you know, it's it's a funny thing about your the arc of your life, because you know, he he came to NYU, he'd been at North Carolina School of Arts, and he was just was Paul. He was fully developed. You know, I mean he had, of course, you know, now he's had so many years to become the amazing artist that he is, but he was an amazing artist at twenty two years old, however old he was he has a quiet he's like the most peaceful soul. Now I don't know what's if that's maybe a lot tearing around inside there I have no idea. But I think part of his appeal uh as a collaborator is this steady thoughtful. He's got, you know, he's got incredible taste and he's got the mind of a wizard as well. But those things don't necessarily make a career. In fact, sometimes they end in there's those are the first people to to leave. He would be in, a, yeah, you know, he's doing the Wicked films. so he's probably. Uh, I don't think he's even in the country
0: now. I want to go back to full on money, the weekly conversation. So you had Aladdin, and you keep saying recoupment that you you become a shareholder once it hits recoupment.
1: So it's why I it's why I earlier said a lot, we should use Kinky Boots as a model because Kinky Boots is a not produced by a trillion dollar company. Not that the. Disney theatrical arm of it, but overall with the parks and the everything that they do is big, big canopy. Um, but with Aladdin, they started sharing right from the beginning. Even though there wasn't profit per se, I mean there was profit, but the initial investment had not been paid back. So you don't get the you know there may be a week on another kind of show where you get three thousand bucks, four thousand bucks if it's really like hammering at a very high ticket price and full capacity. And that's your little part of the point. But with, a Al- so Aladdin has been more unpredictable because it comes in a different kind of, they have a different box that they, and they don't have to, you know, the uh, uh, the Disney company doesn't necessarily have to work under the Broadway agreements. They have their own situation. So yeah, so with Aladdin, we shared a more upfront, And because there were so many companies right out of the gate, you know, by two and a half years into it, we'd done six more companies. And I should say that just, I mean, it's, it's obvious, but every company has a royalty. Every company, once it recoups, you share in the profits. So that's why it's like a mountain that, you know, if, if you're part of a pit, that's sort of how it builds.
0: Got it. And you had mentioned... Uh, buyouts, and maybe that was just the holiday shows, but with Aladdin, is there uh, a buyout option or are you still uh, getting the weeklies and the share shareholders? Yeah. All right, congratulations. <laughs> but you sacrificed 23 shows to do
1: that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I had a dinner, oh, it was a little bit while ago now, a couple of years ago, with three design designers of a different generation than I am. I mentioned that at the table and they were like, are you nuts? Why why didn't you do all the jobs? And I said, I just, if I was you, I probably would have because you're young. You have, but I know myself. I know I don't sleep anyway. So I don't want 23 jobs worth of stress to add to my insomnia problem. You just have to, you know, you have to manage it the way you, it works for you.
0: Um, okay, so let's now talk about the other thing, Kinky Boots. First off, recruitment. How long does recruitment take? And I guess well, let's just use Kinky Boots as an example.
1: I guess it depends on how much the initial budget was. So say it was $15 million. Well, it can take a long time. It depends, though. You know, it's very funny because uh, a good friend of mine designed uh, the Sereno revival that Kevin Klein did with Jennifer... Um, Married to Ben Affleck, Aniston, <laughs> Cyrano Revival, Jennifer Jennifer Garner, Jennifer Garner, and right in the, I believe right in the middle of it there was that there was a strike, and it and it, you know it was a limited engagement. Obviously, if you've got Jennifer Garner and it, you know an all star cast, it's going to be if you're you know a six month commitment, and that recouped. And it was Cyrano de Bergerac. It's it's a very expensive play to produce and i know that i'm sure that there were compromises but it looked i mean my friend gregory gale who designed it it looked like a million dollars just on the i mean more than a million dollars on the clothes but it recouped so then you then you might work on something that seems to be doing well and it runs for 3 years and it still never recouped and you think why didn't it recoup and maybe it's not as lavish an evening as a thing like Cyrano. so i don't really know how that works and we're not privy to those financials. Like Mean Girls recouped just a couple of weeks before COVID shut it down. And then it shut down later. And that had been running, I think, about two years. So, you know, it usually takes, I think, between two and three years if your numbers are doing pretty well. Drowsy Chaperone, I know it recouped, recouped in a year and a half. But then You know, it was very quickly after that. It was in the the Marriott, which is such a big space, and it it, um, recouped and then it closed. So we never saw much financial sweetness from that experience.
0: I see, because then it went on tour, but that's a whole, you start over again with...
1: You start over, basically. Yeah, the tour is not necessarily linked financially to, I mean, it is linked to the Broadway show, but... You can have a completely different set of producers. The the cost of setting up the tour, running a tour, is obviously enormous. Um, so those things, if if you're looking to to benefit from the royalty from the recoupment, it, that may take another two years. You know, so you may be so say like in the case of uh, again, I can't really use Aladdin because they don't. But say if Aladdin had been produced by a, a traditional Collective of producers. If it wasn't Disney, and say that an, the company on Broadway had recouped in four years. I this is all just me speculative. It, it's none of this is accurate, but it opened in Japan a year. But we wouldn't have been benefiting from Japan until Japan recouped. If that makes sense. So it's like a run delay in a way. Yeah,
0: yeah, I got you. And I and I know a little bit from the producing side is that. broadway producers right they sort of have first right of refusal for the tour and but they have to put in a new chunk of money and and the tour tends to go out before the other version has recouped unless it's just like hamilton and going lightning fast. but so if you're a producer you have to have that x amount of dollars or access to it without having gotten that income from the okay so then the last thing i want to talk about which is the holiday shows, you mentioned a buyout. I, I guess, how does the Rockettes work or how does a holiday show and a buyout work?
1: Well, the first time I was offered to design at the Christmas show was, it was just owned by Madison Square Garden. Uh, the gentleman, I, at the time I had a lawyer instead of an agent. The lawyer said, now, and mind you, I had never made a fee over $400 at this point. And I'd been here for been at least 10 years. <laughs> You know, making my little bit at NYU and scraping along as you do. The fee was $25,000. And I was so shocked at the enormity of that number. I couldn't believe it. And for that money, I designed one number, but it was a big, you know, it was like a lot of clothes, maybe two numbers. Then the next year, they decided it was with a new director to them, they were changing the guard. And they came back and they had another chunk of the show they wanted to redo it. It was another $25,000 fee. So that happened. Then after that, I did Sideshow. That was my first Broadway show. It was suggested to me that I get an agent and supposed to using a lawyer. And I thought, well, that makes sense. Um, so my agent... A couple of years went by, so he negotiated sideshow, which of course was not a financial success. I get another call from the Christmas show, so we did two years. There's a little break, two two years, and then I'm back. And I and they called me, and I said, "They said, you know, it's twenty five thousand dollars." And I said, "Well, you're going to have to talk to my agent because I've switched representation." Now, it just so happened that my agent represented the director choreographer some of the music people. So he knew what other people were making on the show. So when he came back to me, and I was his only designer at the time, I believe. I think I was his first designer. So he didn't have a history with knowing this person makes this much, this person makes that much, which is useful later when you, as you're building your career and other people are building theirs. Not that he ever tells me what they make, but he knows what they make. So he says to me, I hope I did okay in negotiating this my first time. And I said, well, what was it? Less than $25,000. And he said, no, it's $60,000. And I thought, yeah, there you go.
0: I mean, there there you go for, for giving them their fee. You know, if he's taking 10%, $6,000, you're still coming out well far ahead of what your lawyer did.
1: Exactly. And, and in a way, back to our earlier, the conversation that we had about privilege really i didn't i thought twenty five thousand dollars was striking gold if i had been more informed you know i could have now believe me i wouldn't trade the twenty five thousand dollars i wouldn't trade the experience more importantly i wouldn't trade the experience of doing that even though it's anonymous (laughs) and it never i never got to my knowledge another job from doing the christmas show i just did the christmas show that was it was a but if I had talked about this to other people and they were called to do the Christmas show, they would have just my history might be useful to them in their own negotiation. And what I found, so back to your bigger question about this kind of event. So that's true of um, Kenneth Feld, who used to produce the circus and does Disney on ice. I did the circus. and I did many Disney on ices. They paid a similar fee but there's no further financial relationship and they can make toys. They make their money selling those whirly gigs and stuffed animals and snow cones, whatever in the lobby. And a lot of that, some of it is predicated on stuff that you just, you know, they take the costume and put it on a Barbie doll, but you're not sharing in the Barbie doll back to Disney. That is another blessing of how they do business is I designed, they took one of the costumes from the show, made a one-of-a-kind Jasmine slash Barbie doll, and I share in sale of that Barbie doll, which is, and uh, they have a teddy bear that looks like a genie, and it has my costume on. They didn't have to do that. You know, they didn't have to include me, but they're they're ethical, and that's how they roll. So, yeah.
0: All right. So if I have a baby boy, which I'm presumably going to have, and he gets to the age where I need to get him a genie doll. I should make sure I buy the Broadway version genie doll so that Greg Barnes can make a penny.
1: Yeah, less than a penny, but... I'll buy 10. I'll buy 10. <laughs>
0: I'll, I'll, sp- I'll spend $700 so that you can get one penny. So I can
1: make a dollar. That'd be great.
0: Um, <laughs> well, we're, we're starting this book club this year, a financial independence book club. So once, once a month, we are uh, reading a financial book and we're going to uh, discuss it. And it's going to rebroadcast as a podcast episode. We're looking for, uh, like giveaways, attendance prizes. So we're doing two a week that we're going to give away. And now I'm going to be looking for an opportunity to be like this month, we're giving away a genie doll and a Jasmine Barbie. (laughs)
1: That's (laughs) it.
0: Amazing. Taking a break from the interview to mention our Patreon page. Now the perks of being a patron are that you get a private podcast feed with all the bonus materials and early releases of each episode, including part two of today's interview. Now patrons, in addition to keeping this show running, are helping Artistic Finance give monthly support to more than 30 other freelancers with side hustles, and that's including a fellow designer, Porsche McGovern. We recently upped our contribution to the work they're doing, gathering and publishing demographic statistics of who designs in Lort theaters. Lort theaters are the big regional theaters in the USA. That is a massive project and they have undertaken it for several years and are continuing on. If you want to help me produce this show and also help me give to other artists who are doing the good work, I would absolutely love to have your support. Along the way, we will get our fellow artists to invest for themselves and their future. To sign up, visit patreon.com artisticfinance And now back to the show. Just in case I missed it, how long did it take for Kinky Boots to recoup?
1: I'm going to say, I don't remember exactly, probably say approximately three years.
0: Okay. And it was on Broadway for three years.
1: It was on Broadway for six or seven or eight.
0: It went by so quickly that eight
1: years. (laughs) Yes, I know, right? So yeah, so Kinky Boots recouped whenever it did, say it was two years in, and then it ran for four more years. So during those four years, uh, I was sharing in the profit of the whatever the show was making above and beyond it's um what it needed to pay for all the rent on the building and the actors and that stuff still obviously that their base
0: and and then for the holiday buyouts is is that presumably just because it's a limited run is that like the situation of why there's buyout for holiday shows
1: i don't know why it's set up that way um but the fee is so much more you know like a broadway fee Depends on the show. It depends on how big it is. It depends on a lot of things. But you know, it's maybe thirty-five thousand to six forty-five, 000, fifty thousand. So if you're getting a sixty-five thousand one time and it's guaranteed, you know, you know how to plan because it's a finite situation. Whereas, you know, like say you're thinking, oh, I, you know, I I'll um I'm going to do this show and it's going to be an enormous hit. and I'm going to buy a country house, and you're looking at country houses. And the show isn't a hit, so so you know you know what to expect. I mean, that's part of being a freelance person is that you you know what you don't know what to expect, and certainly COVID shut down so many of our dreams.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, having seen the Rockets recently, I will say it was painful how much product placement was in the show specifically talking about the costumes they literally make a plot point of the costume and how this costume is special and different and i'm like oh my gosh this is just so everybody goes and buys the doll so of course we went and bought the doll
1: absolutely yeah absolutely i had designed a number called snow which had been retired and then this year they uh re brought it back as the it's that fairy with the drones flying around the it's the same costume with wings on it, but then they you can advertise it as new number or a new costume. You know that's their skill set is to to figure out how to take what you have and remarket it or change the brand or whatever to continue to uh, see financial benefit from it. Funny, it takes so many skill sets for all of us to. You, know, you have to be a communicator, you have to be a good storyteller, you have to have you know, some vision, you have to know how to make the thing happen, you have to have a fitting room presence, you have to have a tech presence, you have to, you know, there's so many skill sets at work. And there are people who, where one of their skill sets is to be a really brilliant business mind, but uh, that's not me.
0: <laughs> well, on that vein, because we had Ken Billington talking about how he has an agent or sorry, doesn't have an agent. Ken Billington has a lawyer. I found out, uh, I guess, if quite a few lighting designers have uh, lawyers. I have neither lawyer nor agent. But because you had both and maybe it doesn't matter and it just depends on what you're feeling or at what stage you are in your career. If there's somebody who doesn't have either, but they think they're ready for one. Do you say lawyer or agent?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, I loved my lawyer, but I've really been at my agency now since 1997. So good many years. And, you know, the thing I think uh, uh, it's a, a, an expectation thing. You know, everybody says, "Oh well, a lawyer doesn't get you work. They just negotiate the contract and take care of the finances. But an agent doesn't necessarily get you work either. But there are, so you know, once you get into a financial, say you're part of a hit. And you're getting a paycheck from Australia, a tour, check. They're all different companies in a way. Japan, so with, say kinky boots, Australia, Germany, the UK, Japan, Canada, Broadway, and a national tour. And I'm, oh, Korea. So that's eight different entities to keep track of. The agent is taking, keeping track of all that because, of course, their income is dependent on, this running like clockwork and not getting messed up and somebody not remembering to re- withhold the tax or whatever. There's you know, it's a whole other complicated thing. So for your for yourself, if you're good at tracking all that, um, you don't really need to have an agent that's not my strong suit for sure. I can honestly say, maybe other than putting in a good word for me, but I've never had my agent call me and say, I got you this job. Or I got you this interview. Really?
0: They've never taken credit for it, or they've just never done that. They've never gotten you an interview.
1: They got me an interview. I got an interview at Kleinfeld's to de- design a wedding dresses, and I got into that a little bit. And I thought, what am I doing? This is not my passion. I don't. So, but that was. I. I mean, maybe my agent would argue that, but I. I. I don't know. But I, I'm not aware of any. Uh, all the jobs have come because. I mean, I essentially work for two people, Jerry Mitchell and Casey Nicholow, and I'm very blessed that they both work and they work, you know, they're prolific. Um, but I, I'm not turning down jobs from a, a whole list of A-list directors, I, though I just don't get those calls. So I'm not interviewing with fill in the blank, any really anybody. I mean, I think in my entire career, I interviewed twice for jobs I didn't get. All the rest of my career has been based on not just those two people. I worked with Eric Schaefer on Broadway. I worked with Robert Longbottom on Broadway. In fact, uh, Robert Longbottom is the person who got me to Broadway. But the bulk of my career has been with these two amazing directors.
0: I'm glad you said that because I've never interviewed. I I once interviewed by accident and I didn't know it was an interview, so I didn't get the job, clearly. (laughs) Um, But I'm now... um, becoming a father, thinking about leaving the city, looking for teaching jobs. And I got to say, I've never had to put together a CV. I've never had to put together like it has been one of the hardest challenges of my career is like sitting in the Excel document, sitting in the Word document. It has been painful.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I can't even imagine. Yeah, like literally, I don't even maintain a portfolio if I if I get called on to go, say, speak at a, at a, a, give a master's class or something or go speak to students. I frantically look around and say, what is on the, what's under the desk there, put it in a folder. And I rush off to have a chat with the kids, but so, cause I don't have a portfolio and I really never have had a portfolio.
0: I mean, I, it's funny. I, cause I go peruse the internet and find all the designers websites and I go look and it's amazing the amount of like huge scale designers that don't have a website. And then, but then there's other ones that do have amazing, beautiful websites. And it's like, wow. And some of them, you're like, clearly they just paid somebody to put this together and they did a really great job, but it doesn't really seem to matter at all.
1: You know, it was interesting um, during COVID, uh, I got a call from LaDuca, the, the dance shoe uh, company to do uh, a, a as like essentially a zoom chat and the day of the chat, the guy who was the moderator said, Oh, by the way, it's, it's an Instagram chat. And I was like, I am not on Instagram and I'm an idiot with anything technological. So I'm frantically scrambling to join Instagram. I thank God it all worked out. But the funny little blessing to this is that prior to, so say let's say it was two and a half years ago that this happened. I had never saved one photo, one, I just was working all the time. I was lucky to be working and I didn't, I didn't think it, but all of a sudden I was like, you know what? I need to be chronicling what I spent my life doing. And so uh, I started, and you know, you think, oh, well, certainly out in the, in the world, uh, in the cyber world. No, it's not out there. These things that, you know, I did, I was a, for 12 years I was the resident designer at the Paper Mill Playhouse and they did six shows a year and I usually would do five of them. I did that from 1990 to 2001. And none of that is out, you know, very very unless that one of the actors has pictures, but there's nothing out in the in the world to prove that I had done all of these things, other than maybe the old sketches, if I still have them. So I, I started to um, chronicle my life in a way. Uh, uh, one thing, this is not about money, but it's about, it's about your life. When I was in school at NYU, we were just graduating. A friend of mine said, can I have a sketch? And I said, oh, sure. I was so honored. Nobody had ever asked for a sketch before. And my very dear friend, Kitty Leach, said to me, you know what? I have a feeling a lot of people are going to want to have a sketch. Why don't you keep a document? And, of course, it started off on a legal pad. And so I did. Now here we are 43 years later, and I pretty much – I don't always remember to clock it, but I can look now at this document, and I can say – I've donated three, 288 sketches to Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS flea market. I have either gifted or sold, or they've been stolen an additional 700 sketches. So it gives me an idea of my output, you know, and that's, I mean, and I have in a closet here in the studio. I think it's more important than we think in the moment to chronicle what we're up to. And certainly financially, to remember exactly what I made, what I spent, because it bears resonance later, even if it's just as a teaching tool for other people. So I wish that I had been more keyed into that than I was, because it's only recently that I started to gather what I can find of my past.
0: Yeah, I'm getting flashbacks of the John Lee Beatty archiving. I I think he had the same... Same sort of thought of, you know, and, and he saved everything, but it's like the thing, the things that went missing, the thing I even went a couple of years ago when I was working with him, I went to uh, San Diego for vacation and he said, Oh, can you stop by the old globe? Because I have XYZ. So I stop and I say, Hey, I'm looking for this sketch. And they say, yeah. And here's eight others that you can take back to him as well. God bless
1: John Lee and God bless you. I, I don't know. I would never have even thought it was important, but now I see Uh, And you know what's very funny? Um, You know, I'm I'm on the panel that chooses the Irene Sheriff Awards, which is a theater development fund award that they give out every year. It's a costume-related award, and they give an award to uh, a living designer, a a young designer, a lifetime achievement award, in memoriam award, and then they give an artisan award. And then every year, Susie Bensinger, who's an amazing designer, uh, makes a film about. Somebody, and it might be a designer, it might be a shop, it might be, and the hi- our history is so short, and yet, probably except for John Lee, that a designer will come up from the nineteen thirties, and you when you see a film about their the arc of their life and what they achieved, it is staggering, and yet. The younger generations, they, you know, when you're young, you don't have time. You don't have, you're just trying to get through the day and make your way and find your voice and make sure your voice is heard. But those things are strangely important. And I I think um, if somebody's watching this, who's at that time in their life, even if they're older, but they're at that time in their career life, just to pay attention to your archive.
0: I I love that we're talking about this because it is important, completely unrelated to artistic finance, but we're documenting things like every episode, every interview is documenting something. And when Howell Binkley died, my biggest regret, I never had him on artistic finance, You know, (laughs) which is fine, but it's like, that could have been a documentation of, and also John Lee Beatty. I mean, he's very private in his donation gift giving. I mean, he, People ask him for, to donate things, right? And me spending so much time with him, you know, he would say, Oh, I just got asked to donate here, like talking it all through. Like, should I give, should I give and how much? And, and should I be anonymous or not? And every single time he was anonymous, he would sometimes say, if you want to use my name, if you think it will help the cause, please do. Other than that, I want to be anonymous. And that is totally cool and respectful, but I, in a situation having a theater or having a building or something named after John Lee Beatty or perhaps Greg Barnes, only because it's a history of designers who are never documented. I think there's some importance. I'm not saying he needs to be egotistical. I never knew Tony Walton, but when he passed away, I was doing A Day in Hollywood, A Night in the Ukraine, which he designed originally on Broadway. And then I was working at the Actor Studio of Drama School, which he helped found. So then of course I am just affected by it for no reason, even though I have no connection. So I go look into his career and it's like this massive career. And even though I knew the name Tony Walton, I didn't know half of what he had done, but it is that same thing of I'm this kind of person where I go on the internet, Broadway database, I go look up a Broadway show from 1905. I either trace the design to modern day of they worked with this person and this person, this person, or I will actually start crying because it's just so beautiful that all these people were there and were at the height of their game on Broadway in 1905, and not a single person, including Broadway, know who these people were.
1: Exactly. It's so true. I'll tell you, if I can, an anecdote about Tony Walton, which it's not about finances, but I think in some philosophical way, it is crucial and it's related. I broke my finger. I have this funky bent finger now because I fell on the ice. Tony used to hire a lot of NYU graduate students to be his assistants. Many of them, that became their career. And so I broke my finger, and, and I'd never met Tony Walton, and but I was at NYU. I was still teaching there at the time. And one of these students said, came down from upstairs to the undergrad where I taught, and said, oh, Tony is so worried about you breaking your finger. Is it your drawing hand? And I said, okay, wait a minute. Tony Walton knows my name and knows that I draw, that I like to paint like that is. It was the most, it was like getting a letter from Out of the Blue from Hell Prince. That same kind of, you know, we think that we're going through this anonymously, and but people are watching. So I had this. I never met him. We didn't talk. So one day I was doing a a, a play, the only play I've done on Broadway other than the musicals for um, the second stage, and I had to go to the costume collection because their budgets are. It's not. It's a different scale, and I was going through these old musty costumes and so bitter, just like when does it stop? When do you get to be, you know, with Do all the greats do this? Do they have to come and go through this nasty-ass slipper bin looking for a, trying to find the mate to some dirty old slipper that, you know what I mean? So I'm in this really negative headspace. And this gentleman who I know is Tony Walton, because even though I've never met him, I know what he looks like, comes around the corner and he says, you're Greg Barnes. And I said, oh my God, Tony Walton, it's an amazing to meet you. (laughs) What are you doing here? And he said, aren't we lucky? And I about fell down dead because I was not, that was not the tape that was playing in my mind. I was like, aren't we lucky? Aren't we lucky? And he said, the history in this building, the treasures that are the stories that are contained in these racks and in this slipper bin. (laughs) And I thought, that's who I want to be. I sure I have my, you know, cross to bear and my my beefs and my, you know, there's people I love and people that I don't love in the business. But the end of the day, it's such a blessing to get to do this at whatever level, at whatever, even though it comes with ridiculous hardship. But I want to be T- tony Walton. I want to because it because it nurtures my reason for living. I'm I'm not content unless I'm in this path doing this job
0: that's so beautiful and uh, you know i wasn't expecting this sort of gratefulness coming from us on this show
1: (laughs) (laughs) i know right we
0: have a lot of gratefulness but i absolutely love it and and just one more little point on it which is there's 150 people that listen to this show a lot of times i just think oh eight billion people on the planet 150 of them join me every week and honestly we all do it anonymously so none of us talk or interact but we share this moment of of audio together, this is dawning on me recently, is that those 150 people care about the stuff that we're talking about passionately. And they may not feel passionate because I never feel passionate day to day, except those moments of reflection. Yes, you and Tony Walton, two people out of 8 billion meeting, while it may not matter to that many people, like 150 people listening, it, it does matter.
1: Yeah, you know, I know when I was used to teach, I would always say to my students, um, if nothing else, be part of the community. And if you see something, if you see the band's visit and it touches you deeply, write to David Cromer or to the design team. Don't say, oh, by the way, I'm a design student and I would love to show you my work. Don't have an ulterior motive. Just reach out because it's it touched you. I guarantee you, it will come back to you. It may not come back to you in a paycheck. It may not come back to you in a job, but it will come back to you in some surprising and delightful way just because you were a generous player in the game. I really believe in that. And I think it somehow affects your financial life as well.
0: I think so too, because being a part of the community, I am a um, recluse, I'm not good socially. I don't like going out to the bar, blah, 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 blah. But this podcast has forced me into the community in a comfortable way. It's a one-on-one conversation that I'm having with you and I'm becoming a part of the community. We had Ken Billington on and he talked about how he's a very social person and that's reflective in his career because there's so many times he's out being social and that gets him work because he's out there being involved. And so I think being part of the community, however you do it, is wildly important and does directly impact your finances.
1: I agree completely. You know, there will come a day when you will interview for a Broadway show and hopefully you get that show and many others, but there will be some that you don't get. And I think the greatest gift you can give yourself is to go see it. Don't be bitter about not getting the job and just say, I wish no matter what if it's a fiasco or if it's divine just say this wasn't for me. I give this to these people bow to their I I I embrace their success. I wish for their success but it wasn't for me. My chance will come and 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 somehow I know that sounds crazy in a way but but I believe that it will.
0: Greg I could talk to you forever. I mean so I try to keep these to an hour and we're now at two hours. Oh my god. <laughs> and I have loved every minute. So I'm gonna circle it back really quickly to you to the archiving and to Instagram that you didn't have. I now found your Instagram, G Barnes Design. That's it. You have four thousand followers. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet I bet you get One, two, three. I'm going to say three. I bet you get three more at least after this airs and goes viral.
1: I hate to admit it, but I do check my, I don't know why I don't normally care about that kind of thing, but I do like, I like to have uh, those 4,000 people I appreciate.
0: And you check your DMs if I DM you?
1: I'm not good about that. I just the other day figured out that what it was. That's how stupid I am. (laughs) Like, oh my God, there's what are these messages here?
0: Well, Greg, all I can say is, uh, Thank you so much. I, I had such a great time and I suspect this is gonna become a two parter, but this was such a lovely conversation that I don't wanna cut it up and put it on the Patreon because I just I love it so much. So thank you. And I actually my last question which is where can people connect with you and who do you want connecting with you?
1: Probably through I guess Instagram <laughs>
0: <laughs> Okay, yeah, you're not no one's gonna get a hold of you. Okay. <laughs> That's amazing.
1: But oh, you know what I would say? Uh, you know, if you're in the union, you can, uh, if you're in the design union, you can get get like the, the most potent thing, just because it never happens, is to get the person's address, dock them a little bit, and write them a letter, a handwritten letter. I think it is, I it goes back, I was telling you, I told my students to to somehow reach out. I think there's something about doing something that takes something of you that isn't just an instant gratification kind of ex- exercise. I'm a needy, emotionally needy. I'll take anything I can get. But yeah, it's probably on, probably on Instagram.
0: Wait, so just to be clear, you're saying if you're part of the union, go to the union address book, find your address and write you a letter?
1: Write me a letter. Unless it's hate mail. But you can send it-
0: <laughs> if, if you If you hate me that much to write me a letter, like, I want to hear that.
1: I better check my... I probably need to check something out, right?
0: <laughs> um... <laughs> Okay, so challenge to the listeners. One, if you'd like to get in contact with Greg, go to the union address book. And if you're not part of the union, contact somebody, hello, me, who is a member and can get you the address of Greg Barnes and write him a letter. And if you have no interest in talking with Greg Barnes, but you're interested in talking to somebody like Natasha Katz or something like that, do the exact same thing. Go in, get the address. As Greg Barnes says, uh, stalk them a little bit. And send, send them a letter. And if you're feeling weird about it, at the top of the letter, you say, hey, I know this is weird to get a handwritten letter in 2023, but Greg Barnes said to do this.
1: <laughs> it's unforgettable because it never happens. <laughs>
0: Amazing. And now I'm like, is my address up to date in the union address book? It is. I know, right? <laughs> All right, Greg, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your 2023 because we're just at the beginning here.
1: I know. And congratulations on that soon-to-be baby. That's it for this week's episode.
0: My takeaways are paying off a mortgage early, not paying anything extra yet allowing the extra early payments to chip at the principal and part and parcel with that takeaway, keeping the mortgage as an interest deduction. So just as paying lots of taxes means you're making money, not getting a tax break on interest means that you're not paying interest. Greg goes to the beat of his own drum to feel financially in control, which is worth more to him than if he did the tax advantage method of paying off the mortgage. I'm calling attention to this for all those times that you see someone explaining some logical money-saving hack or tax-deductible hack that you're not doing. The reality is, if you're in control and you know what you're doing, you're good, even if you're not taking advantage of this thing or that thing. The $12,000 that was spent on a show that never went anywhere. Greg could afford it and it made his design better, it made him feel better. Now it didn't pay off financially, but that's not what it's about. Some people gamble in Vegas, some people donate money, and some designers put money into making their designs better. I'm not saying I have an opinion for doing that or not doing it because every case is different. All designers are different, design areas are different. For example, if I wanted to buy a certain light for a project that might cost me $35,000, which means I'm not gonna do that for the design. However, if I could buy a handkerchief or maybe a pair of shoes that might improve my costume design, I would be inclined to do that. I will say that if you've put your money into a design and that design didn't come back to you by being rehired by the director or the producer, or now the show is in the distant past and nobody even remembers it, you didn't do anything wrong. I've never spent $12,000 on a show, but I have done a lot of nonprofit work and I have purchased gobos, fog fluid, even paid for small rentals on my own. And I've purchased two ETC Nomad lighting controls and a laptop that I've left on dozens of small shows so that the stage manager could have an easier time taking cues. And frankly, never has it come back to me financially, but It has made my life easier. It's made other people's lives easier. Somehow I just have felt like it's been the right thing to do. All right, monastic lifestyle. Now this is a repeating theme on this show, and that is that a lot of theater artists do not have a lavish lifestyle. There's a lot of factors for that. I think partially it could be low wages in the live performance world. Partially it's because they're too busy to go out and spend money. And partially because like most humans, we only need so many necessities and we don't need much more than that. I'm only mentioning this because it's another unique feature of why people listen to artistic finance. A lot of mainstream financial advice is about cutting things out of your budget, not spending more than you need, taking advantage of your 401k. Yet most live events workers don't actually need that advice. It's good advice, but it doesn't apply to our lifestyle for designers using an agent or a lawyer for negotiating contracts. Now, Greg didn't have a preference, but he did provide a story that the agent helped him get more money. Now that hits on a point that is made time and time on this show, getting people with knowledge about finance and business and letting them help you. Anything that can save you time and energy is only going to benefit your career. And finally, the information about royalties and how designers earn is pretty great. What it boiled down to for me there was when you're negotiating your first royalty show, be sure to talk with other designers, maybe get an agent, maybe get a lawyer, aka get some help, don't just do it on your own. And the other part is that regardless of what happens, if you're fortunate enough to work on a show like that, it's going to be good for you. So what did you think? Did you enjoy this two-part interview? Let me know by emailing me directly at artisticfinancepodcast at gmail.com or sending me or Greg a letter. 10 points to Gryffindor for anyone who does send a letter. If you want to support artistic finance, I would absolutely love to have you as a patron. For that, you will get early access to episodes and the outtakes from all previous interviews. And most importantly, you are supporting our mission to normalize financial conversations amongst creative professionals. We do that by providing freelancers answers to any financial question in the safest space possible. And of course, we've taught people what 1099 income is, what a Roth IRA is, and what compound interest is. I'm so glad that you're listening in and learning along with us. If you do wanna help support the financial part of this show, join up at patreon.com artisticfinance You can join for as little as $3 a month. Thank you in advance for that, and you are making a difference. Now, if you're not ready to become a patron, there are other ways that you can help support me. Now, the biggest relates to today's episode. Now, you may have heard me mention not getting a documented interview with Hal Binkley. Here's the reality about that. I am one person, so I'm not going to be able to get interviews with every Broadway designer, with every creative designer, with every creative person that I would love to have on this show. So, how this applies to you is that if there is someone that you would like to hear on this show, go get a hold of them. I don't care whether you are an introvert or not. I don't care if you're a good public speaker or not. I want you to get a hold of that person and interview them. I'm happy to provide an outline or to help coordinate, but if you can get the interview and record it on your own time and on their own time, we could potentially put it onto this show. And if it can't fit into the schedule for this show, we can at least have it for posterity. That's a big ask, but I would love for you to think about it and potentially even do it. Another incentive for it, other than just documenting a life or a career, is that it gives you a reason to connect with someone that you'd like to meet. It also gets you involved in the community. Greg mentioned the importance of getting involved in the community, and this is a surefire way to do it. That's it for today. Until next week, break a leg.
1: Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Make sure to
0: subscribe. To access our show notes, transcripts, or resources, go to artisticfinance.com.
1: This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.